to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave. I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. Today joining us, we've got Paddy Morgan. Paddy is an anaesthetist based out of Bristol. He's a critical care doctor for the Great Western Air Ambulance, a trauma team leader. He does a little bit of lecturing on drowning and hypothermia and aspects of wilderness medicine. He's been published in The Nancy Caroline, which will mean a lot to the paramedics out there, as well as the Oxford Handbook and the ABC of Transfer Medicine. He's worked in a few places across the world. Oh, and uh, he was Air Ambulance Dog of the Year a couple of years ago as well. So uh, quite the distinguished guest. Paddy, welcome. Thanks so much for coming on to join us. Thank you, Dave. It's amazing what you can find on the internet. <laughs> we do a bit of stalking before we chat with you guys. The thing we want to try and pick your brains on is around drowning and hypothermia and those patients on the side of a Scottish loch or out near the coast who have come fresh out the water and, to be honest, are a bit of a nightmare to deal with. Uh, absolutely right. I suppose the bit you haven't found on the internet, I was very fortunate. I spent four years in Aberdeen University many moons ago before I found medicine as a career. And one of the random bets I had at the time as a arguably stupid student full of vigour, energy and life was to swim across Loch Inch for 5p in December in nothing but my dukas. Um, that didn't end too well. <laughs> as you suggest, the cold water gets you. And the first thing that, of course, will happen is I got in, I took a very large, big, deep breath in as I broke through the ice Thankfully, it was only about six inches deep and it was only my feet and big inhalation, rapid breathing. I could feel my heart pounding so hard it was giving me a headache and I lost my 5p bet as I got out. Taking it to the next level, of course, as you suggest, it's, you know, what do you do if somebody has got into that circumstance, not through student stupidity, but actually by accident or, or otherwise? And what can we do about it? Which I suppose is sort of the key question. Today... If you were, you know, I'm going to throw it back to yourself. If you found yourself in that situation, you've slipped in, what, what were your first responses? <laughs> I mean, I, I think that there's going to be a, a significant tightening of a number of muscles. <laughs> and I seem to remember something about gasp reflexes. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. The initial thing you'll do when you slip into particularly colder waters and anything below 12 degrees is considered cold, although some people will have quite strong physiological responses above 12 degrees is that initial gasp of <gasps> followed very quickly by a rapid ventilation. <laughs> now, obviously, if you're face down in the water at that point or your subsurface that you've sunk below, then your buoyancy becomes negative, you sink down, and that's you eventually then succumb to a drowning event. And one of the things that the University of Portsmouth, where I've done some research, and the RNLI have looked at is what you do. And that was the focus of their Float to Live campaign. And so even if you're clothed, your clothing will retain sufficient air that as long as you don't fight and struggle, if you do happen to slip into water, which again is a risk as a responder when you're getting close because banks will crumble away, rotten piers will fall through, all these kind of things, or, or even just knocked off quite well-meaning paths. The first thing to do is arms and legs out in the starfish, Try and breathe away. Try not to thrash around. Any air left in your clothes will allow you to float. And then just gentle movements of the arms and the legs will keep you afloat. 
allow that period of initial gasp reflex and then the hyperventilation to slow down to the point you can then make a decision what to do next. Now that might be to grab the rope that somebody's thrown to you as the rescue aid. It might be to orientate yourself to how close the edge of the shore is and gently move towards it or wait for help to come. But again, one of the, the first things in any of this is obviously seeing safety and particularly in water. Because quite often as responders, we won't be wearing swim trunks and life jackets necessarily when we walk out of the front door of our house. You know, we will be in PPE, heavy boots. We may have pockets laden with all sorts of kit. And that's quite risky to go near water. And so again, safety is really key. But if you do happen to slip in, one of the first things to do is just lie on your back, float, gentle movement of the arms, let the air in the suit that you're wearing just stay in there to keep you afloat long enough for that initial gasp and that fast breathing to settle down and then you can look to make a decision as to where you're going to go be that the like i say point of safety or to a point of rescue you mentioned a couple of things there that i just want to touch on 12 degrees am i right in thinking that there's a significant amount of time where the scottish coast particularly the west coast is not actually all that cold you're right uh, coastal waters if you talk to any surfers, they'll always tell you the warmest water is usually around the September-October time. Water is a mass full of energy. It tends to be coldest around the January-February time, and it warms up through the summer, and it holds that heat into the late summer, early autumn, and then starts to cool off again. But, of course, all of that is affected quite badly by currents. So anything that's badly exposed by currents coming from the north, so as you suggest... There's areas within Scotland that are quite exposed to some of the currents in around the Atlantic and the parts of the North Sea, where A, they'll get warm currents coming in, so the water will stay slightly warmer for a period of time beyond that August, September, October period, but also you'll have some of the colder currents. And again, some of those will come with weather systems, and particularly on coastal, those weather systems and those offshore currents can be affected by runoff from the hills. So again, if you get a good snowstorm late autumn, early winter, and it covers the, the mountains, and then you get a warmer period and the snow melts off or you get cold rain runoff, the actual water in the coastal areas will be colder again. So again, it's very much a day-to-day, and there's various centres keep tracks on temperatures. So the Environment Agency keep a track on sea temperatures. There's a lovely website, seatemperatures.org, and quite a lot of fire services now are actually keeping track on temperatures because it does, and it's something we'll probably come on to, it does help in your decision-making when you've got a casualty in front of you. That water temperature has different physiological effects on the body, and so you can start to put together a picture that strategizes whether that person will survive or not, um, partly based on water temperature, but also part of the scene itself. And that's where one of the things in drowning, which is quite good when you turn up and scene, is almost to consider it like a road traffic collision and looking at what is the mechanism, how have they got here, what's the circumstances around this, to start to build up that picture of how much you're going to intervene or not. And if you are intervening, what things are you looking for or not? Okay, so in terms of that mechanism of injury... The initial gasp and then hyperventilation phase, what kind of length of time are we talking about here? Is this five minutes? Is this just kind of 30 seconds? It varies from person to person, and it depends on how much you've previously been exposed to cold water. If you take cold water swimmers, for example, they can jump into a marine lake at 12 degrees and quite happily swim 
without any serious gasping or hyperventilation. And they'll swim around for 20, 30 minutes quite happily, sometimes even longer. If you've never been exposed to cold water, your response will be a lot more profound. So that initial gasp will be somewhere between a litre and two and a half litres inhalation. And then the hyperventilation usually passes over the next 10 to 30 seconds. And as I say, it's usually sort of 10, 15 seconds or so. But for some, it will be very quick, particularly if you've had cold exposure before. For some, it will be quite pronounced if you've had no exposures previously. After that, once that initial hyperventilation phase has gone, that's over. If you take it in stages, first stage is the initial gasp, and it is just one. <gasps> then you're going to have your up to 30 seconds or so of hyperventilation. Some people obviously can go longer, but majority will be over within 30 seconds or so. That's when you start to feel the chill. And at that point, you start to cool. Now, it won't be your core. Your core will maintain its temperature quite well because the human being as an animal is very good at maintaining its homeostasis. You'll generate more heat, you'll shiver, and you'll close down peripherally. So your core temperature, heart, lungs, brain, will stay quite high. And we've had people in the tank in Portsmouth. They're in there for 45, 50 minutes in nothing but their swimming costumes. 12 degree water and their core temperature is still 37.5 peripherally however once your tissues start to go below the 32 mark they'll start to feel like they're cramping up and as they get colder and colder your ability to have coordinated activity goes down now if you've actually as we mentioned gone into a float position you can maintain a float because it's quite a coarse movement if you're trying to do the finer movements of swimming or trying to tread water, actually your peripherals will start to cool down. Some muscular activity, you lose your fine motor and then eventually your coarse motor. And that's where you then get into the problems of you're not actually hypothermic, you're just struggling to keep your head above the water. And if your head's below the surface, and so is your airway. And then suddenly again, you're into hypoxic problems and a drowning event. It's a very weird sensation that you progressively lose the ability to move your fingers and then your forearms. And then eventually, I've certainly been trying to do front call and, and really can just shrug my shoulders and, and very little more. Absolutely. And that's, again, one of the things that, you know, when you're young under the influence of alcohol, you're being dared by your mates and your colleagues, you'll kind of push yourself through those physiological warnings, which are, hang on, I, I can't move my arms as well as I'd like to the sensible kind of considered person would say, well, if I'm now in water and I can't swim as well as I could, I'd quite like to be close to somewhere where I can get out while I still can. Unfortunately, alcohol and bravado are two of the biggest risk factors in this kind of environment for complications such as drowning. Because we don't listen to our bodies. We don't listen when, like you say, when you're trying to do front crawl, actually you're just shrugging your shoulders. We stop listening to our bodies. Um, and so you swim further out or you try and just finish that dare and that's always a dangerous place to be. Okay so we've got a patient in the water who's sort of had that initial muscle failure but core temperature is still okay. If we were to fish them out at this point what are the kind of things that we need to consider? Um, so this is keeping it simple in any drowning event it is a an ABC approach. Have a look at the airway and the key things you're looking for are, is the patient maintaining their airway? If they've managed to keep their head clear of the water, particularly if they've had a, a buoyancy device on or some kind of flotation device with them, fantastic. 
you're now in a really good place in terms of drowning events that whilst, yes, you've been in the water, if you've not actually obstructed your airway and you've not allowed any water to get into your lungs, you are now wet and cold. And that's much easier to manage comparable to a wet, cold and water that's obstructing your airway that's gone down into your stomach, but also gone down into your lungs. So airway, is it clear and is it patent? If they've had periods of submersion, you're more likely to swallow water rather than inhale water. It's a natural instinct. Your brain naturally will keep your glottis closed. You'll swallow, 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 breathe. And when you can no longer swallow, you will break that breath hold and then you will inhale water. But you can have several litres of water in your stomach, which if you're younger can cause problems in that it will splint your diaphragm. So actually ventilation is much more difficult, particularly in children. But also, in you know, we talked about in the sea off the west coast of Scotland, if you've taken on a lot of salt water into your stomach, you'll also be actively vomiting. It's not particularly tasty. And so, again, if the patient is coming out of the water, uh, they've actually swallowed a fair amount of water. When you then line them on the back, they will actually, all that water will start to come up and they'll regurgitate. So, again, good, clear airway management. Suction, suck where you can see. Just going for the water any of the vomit that's coming up, just so they've got that nice clear airway. You're next then, I haven't done your A, and I appreciate I'm teaching many to suck eggs here, but moving on to your B, it is genuinely basics of, you will cough and you will splutter. That's very common, having been in the water. And if any water actually does get into the lungs and irritates the lining, washes out the surfactant, you'll start to get alveolar collapse. But with that, it'll also present, very similar to LVF, and you'll have pink frothy sputum and that pink froth is again it's just air moving in and out through the airways where the surfactant has been washed out don't worry about the pink just like the patients with the lvf you don't go sucking out the foam and the pink froth just ventilation oxygenation and one of the key take-homes that from all of this is air in and out and blood round and round is the key to survival and if that's not happening you're not delivering oxygen to your tissues and if that doesn't happen, the brain will slow down and stop, the heart will slow down and stop, and that's that's obviously not a very good thing. So again, looking at the breathing side of things, the key things are usual stuff. How fast are they breathing? Pulse oximetry is fantastic, but often if you're cold and wet, it doesn't work. It just doesn't pick up. And there's some nice studies done by Jo Spierens over in the Netherlands that looked at this. So again, you have to go on basic physiological markers of, is this person getting enough oxygen? What is their work of breathing? How fast? How hard? Are they coughing and spluttering? If you can get nice warm fingers, can you know, get a SATS probe on, low SATS? But in all of this, you're still going to be an unknown unknown. And so if you have oxygen available, get oxygen on quickly if they're still conscious and breathing. At that point, have a listen to the chest, again, if you have the access. And if you've got crackles on the chest, if they're coughing and there's pink frothy sputum coming up, any foam coming up from the mouth, this drops you into a high-risk category. Those are the people who will struggle with oxygenation and they will go on to struggle even more. And so they definitely need hospital admission. Often, if they've got to that stage where they're producing foam, they will deteriorate before they get better. And they're the ones that need really close eye in hospital. Six hours is supposedly the kind of nominal. And some of the papers from Orlowski and David Spielsman and co. have pointed out that six to 12 hours is your kind of optimal window. If, however, at that point on your breathing assessment, you've actually got kind of a cough and a clear your throat. 
but their breathing is settled down. There's no continuous cough. There's no pink froth or foam. Actually, you've now got a wet, cold patient. And once they're warmed up, they can actually be discharged home. So in terms of a triage criteria, that's your first level. Coughing and foam, if it's not present and the patient is now GCS 15 talking to you, they can be sent home. And we normally suggest sent home with day case type criteria, as in they're with somebody who can call for help if there's a problem. And that person they're with can actually drive a car down that nine, stay sober, and that they've got access to phones and healthcare wherever they may be. And again, it's a problem we find in the southwest sometimes that people live in quite isolated areas and that whilst we can send them home, they live alone and they're an hour from the nearest hospital by car. And so, again, it's not appropriate necessarily to send them home. There is a risk in these that occasionally, so what to 48, 72 hours later, that subtle irritation of the surfactant can turn into an inflammatory problem. And so they get a non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. Previously, this was termed secondary drowning, but that term has been kind of written out uh, these days. There's a the new definition of drowning, which is now more than 15 years old, kind of got rid of that as a terminology. But it's that post the drowning event, the irritation, the inflammation response that you can have later on down the line that it's worth just keeping an eye on, which is why it's worth sending someone home with them. However, the ones we worry about are the ones where they've swallowed all the water, They've now got lots of fluid and vomit in the back of their throat. They are struggling to breathe. Their conscious level is now reduced. Or when you've got down to your C, they're actually in cardiac arrest. These are not happy people. These are the people who will get worse before they get better, and they need an active, aggressive management. Now, that initial management is oxygen therapy. Oxygen is always the key here. If you have the skill set and the technical bits and pieces to do it, Those people who have respiratory distress after a drowning event do benefit from early anaesthetics. And if that's done in the pre-hospital environment, if you've got long transfer times, more's the better. But it is accepted that that's not available to everybody in all circumstances. It's quite a technical skills of intubation, delivery of anaesthesia. And again, quite a lot of environments where drownings occur, it's not conducive for doing such things as safely as possible. So bridging strategies. If your patient's still conscious and can tolerate it. Non-invasive ventilation has been used successfully in uh, Scandinavia. Not so much in the UK, but over in Scandinavia, they've used it quite successfully to bridge people from the pre-hospital setting and even the in-hospital in rural settings to bigger hospital centres. And there are some cases uh, that have been written up where non-invasive ventilation has worked successfully for the first six hours or so, and then patients haven't required it. They've merely required supplemental oxygen therapy. Again, this is a good bridging strategy if you are finding yourself in a remote location. And bearing in mind, non-invasive ventilation, it's very good if you've got a designated machine that can give you bi-level pressure support, etc. But even on a very simplistic level, the water circuit, as you've been trained to use it, works very well. You can use bag valve mass ventilation with assisted vents for the first uh, short period of time. But in any of these, as many people will have found trying this in hospital, it does occasionally force air down into the stomach. Now, this is the same stomach that may have several litres of fluid in. And so, again, thinking back of the mind, not an immediate thing, we may have to drain some of that air that's been forced down, drain some of that fluid that's in there, 
And so nasogastric tubes, later on down the line, when you've actually got the opportunity, again, are a very good thing. In children, however, we'd be encouraging nasogastric tubes earlier rather than later. Again, because children are very much more dependent on respiratory rate and a full diaphragm movement. And so any splinting from stomach contents is going to reduce their ability to ventilate and therefore oxygenate as well. And so, again, early in the treatment of children is nasogastric tubes and drainage of the stomach. Thankfully, children tend to be very good at vomiting on you. So you often don't need them straight away. And it's usually much later down the line, unless, of course, they're in the cardiac arrest, which is always a bonus. Any altered conscious level, again, is an early indication for anaesthetic. Good oxygenation, again, because often it's the hypoxia that knocks off your conscious level first, rather than anything else. Cardiovascular-wise, there's a few interesting phenomena that happen there, depending on how long you've been in the water for. Most people who've been in the water, you don't want to saturate them with lots and lots of intravenous fluids, because one of the problems in any kind of hypoxic injury around the brain is that the brain becomes very edematous and inflamed. And of course, those of you who've seen hypoxic injury in the intensive care unit will notice that there is a lot of edema and swelling there. So you don't want to be flooding these patients with lots and lots of intravenous fluids unless you necessarily have to. And the indications are normally loss of your radial pulse or you're in the post-cardiac arrest phase where they need that vascular support. But in cold water, there is the phenomenon of the sort of post-immersion collapse, very commonly seen during the World Wars, and particularly the Lion Bay disaster. There's some very nice write-ups on that in terms of describing the physiology that happens. And in these, and again, particularly the longer you're in the water and the colder the water is, if you're static in the water, legs down, floating away, hydrostatic pressure on your lower limbs with the cold causing the peripheral vasoconstriction causes a redistribution of fluid. Now, very similar to when you go towards a swimming pool, you get your cold diuresis, that initial kind of wave of cold air across your feet and legs are a bit wet, and the urge to go for a wee. You can have the same phenomena occurring. You're peripherally squeezing and pushing all your fluids to the core. So if you're maintaining that position and 12 degrees, 20, 30 minutes in a vertical position in the water, if you then lift that person vertically out of the water, they get a relative hypovolemia. And the Lyme Bay disaster was quite sad in that they lifted uh, several children vertically out of the water because that was the way rescue was done at that time. And by the time these children that were waving uh, in the sea, by the time they arrived on the platform of the aircraft, they were in cardiac arrest. And essentially, they just had the equivalent of a half a litre to a litre of fluid just suddenly drained out of their system. And that patient who's now 30 or 40 minutes in the water, who's already peripherally cool, the myocardium can't cope as quickly as you'd like. And so they fall into this kind of post-immersion collapse. So again, if they've had prolonged immersion times, now when I say immersion, I'm talking head above the water, shoulders below, that peripheral squeeze, they, those people may need some vascular support with some intravenous fluids. And in the very simple way, bringing those guys out of the water, the best way is to bring them out horizontal as best as you can. Now, obviously, if you've been active in the water, so if you've had a swimmer who's been actively swimming, and there are some very nice swims up in the north of Scotland that are on my, my wish list to do before I part this mortal earth. If you're in the water for 30, 40 minutes when you're actively swimming and contracting your muscles, you don't have the same problem. And so you can walk away from that environment. If you're in the water for several hours, of course, though, you will start to settle into being horizontal. Again, you haven't necessarily lost the fluid or redistributed to the same extent, 
So you can walk out, but these people, particularly if you're watching or being in charge of medical cover for these type of events, they will be a little bit wobbly on their feet when they first come out. So again, it's worth just kind of keeping a close eye. Often though, fluids aren't required immediately and vasopressor support, again, isn't often required immediately. It's usually fluid loss or redistribution from prolonged immersions. The other occasion it can happen is, of course, in the worst case scenario where you've done your ABC and you've got as far as A to realise your patient isn't responsive, the airway isn't clear, and they are actually in respiratory arrest or respiratory and cardiac arrest. And for those patients, it's your standard resuscitation protocols which will involve a bolus of fluid, some adrenaline, because again, they're now in the, the other end of the spectrum that they are relatively hypovolemic because they're acidotic, they've got peripheral vasodilation, but they've also got no flow. And so again, adrenaline as per your resource protocols are appropriate. If you are on your own, there are some fantastic studies. Again, Spielsman over in the States and some of the original stuff by Orlowski and Joe Spearns again has done some work on this, is looking at if you're in that early phase where the heart hasn't stopped, but you have stopped ventilation because you've become sufficiently hypoxic, you've lost consciousness. If you do early ventilations for those individuals, give them early oxygen, you can have some fantastic survivors. And Lin Kuang quotes some statistics from the Great Lakes, suggesting that if you've got respiratory arrest only and not cardiac, your chances of a good neurological survival are nearly 95 96%. So again, early oxygenation is one of the key things here. And with that, the only alteration to your resuscitation protocols, if you remember, and again, doing something is better than worrying about the minutiae, but if you do remember to do five initial inflations, that actually starts to open up those alveoli that have collapsed down because that washout surfactant allows you to overcome that resistance, get some of the oxygen in there. If you can do that with an airway device such as an eye gel or a Supreme Airway, or the superglottic devices, the ProSils, etc. Fantastic. If you have the skill set for intubation, even better, but again, not always available. The other end of the spectrum, bag valve mask with oropharyngeal. Great supplementary oxygen, even better. And worst case scenario, if it's just you, mouth-to-mouth or mouth-to-face pocket mask or protective barrier. Oxygenation is the key. And then again, if you forget the additional five ventilations at the start... Not to worry, just go straight into your resuscitation protocols and run them like a standard cardiac arrest. Again, if you're in a low-resource environment that there's only one or two of you, you don't necessarily have all the equipment. Good quality ventilations, oxygenation, CPR is the key. If you do have the extra, intubation is very beneficial. There's a paper coming out in the resuscitation journal uh, shortly looking at some retrospective data from Japan which looks at just this question. And again, intubation versus supraglossic airways. Intubation has the edge in that you can achieve uh, stability quicker. But again, it also points out early ventilation and oxygenation with bag valve mask, you do get some quite remarkable recoveries quite quickly. Going on beyond that, defibrillation. Well, many would say it's a hypoxic event. So surely these people will have gone tachycardic during the panic as they become more hypoxic dropping into a bradycardic type rhythm PEA and then into asystole and that would be your classic drowning kind of drift if you like but there will be those patients and again this is where we come back to the RTC analogy what has got that patient to be in that circumstance 
it may well be they've had that heart attack, they've had that cardiac arrhythmia whilst they're in the water. It may have been the epileptic seizure they've had whilst in the water. There are some cardiac arrhythmias associated specifically with water. Things like the long QT syndromes, there's some of the subsets there, are associated with water immersion. So again, if an AED is available, it is worth drying the chest, getting the pads on and seeing what your rhythm is. And if it is shockable, a shockable rhythm has a better chance of survival following a drowning event than a PEAA systole. And again, that's all to do with how edematous the brain is in the post-arrest phase. Most people who've had cardiac cessation before the hypoxic injury is kicked in will have a much better outcome comparable to those who've had a hypoxic injury first and then the cardiac event. Because again, it's all to do with swelling of the brain in the 24, 48 hours post-cardiac arrest when they're up on ITU. That's a, a really useful stepwise summary of the decision points and the way through managing acute drowning patient. A couple of things, you debunked some myths there that I think are probably still pretty prevalent, although it's, as you say, it's been 15 years since the drowning consensus meeting tried to kind of shift us on a bit. Some things that still get talked about, dry drowning is a term that still gets knocked around and I think it's probably out of fashion. No, you're absolutely right. It, it still gets banded around. And part of it is that you've got an entire global population desperately trying to use a term that sounds dramatic, that can go in the press. Um, when we're writing things up, we'll go back to the base literature, which used all these wonderful terms. The problem, of course, is if you want to solve a global problem of drowning, even down on a local level, we all have to talk the same language. And so terms like drown, drowning, wet drowning, near drowning, secondary drowning, have all been taken out. And so the official definition of drowning is the experience of immersion or submersion in water, which would then results in either morbidity, no morbidity, following these events. And so the new term on the block from the World Health Organization is a paper that we've worked on internationally, is how you look at the non-fatal drownings, so the, the guys who then survive. But coming back to what you were saying about the dry drowning, in some people they do get, well, it's suspected there is laryngospasm as the water hits the vocal cord. And some of the original studies that looked at this, it's usually young people or those people who've already got dysfunction. But as the hypoxia kicks in, all muscles relax. And so whilst you may have had some laryngospasm early on in the drowning phase, actually, as you become more hypoxic, the vocal cords will relax, and so water will enter the lungs. And so there is a phase, but dry drowning as a term is not to be used anymore because it just creates confusion when other people worldwide look at it and say, well, what does that mean? Did you drown and you weren't in water or... So you can see how the confusion comes. But yes, laryngospasm is there, but all spasm goes eventually. And therefore, presumably, there's no reason to adjust our approach or kind of management of these Not patients. at all. There's, the management of any pre-hospital scene, as I'm sure your listeners are aware, if you can have simple principles, it tends to be more successful, that the clever, sexy, top-of-the-pyramid stuff can only be done if the foundations of care are done well. And the foundations in drowning are keep yourself safe, keep your team safe. If those two are safe, then you can affect an effective rescue. Once the patient's out, it's an ABC approach. Oxygen is the key. And if you can deliver those things on a good foundation, good quality, basic care, then actually the next level, the higher tier stuff can be done. But whether it's what we used to call dry drowning or wet drowning, 
actually, it's going to be very difficult to distinguish that. And of course, the question in anything in, in my simple mind is, does having that knowledge change what I'm about to do next for this patient? Will that decision point or that piece of knowledge affect my management of this patient? And having managed numerous drownings over my career, I can honestly say when they're wet and they're hypoxic, they need ventilation and oxygen. Really nice and crisp summary and gets rid of all the confusion and kerfuffle and, and being unsure about all the, the fine points. The next thing that, that often comes up is a question of kind of time scales and people being unsure about how long is too long to be under the water, whether temperature affects that. What are your thoughts around length of drowning and survivability and prognostics? Good question. So prognostics in drowning is actually a very difficult topic to research because, of course, the, you know, the gold standard would be a randomised control trial. But I think trying to get past ethics that I want to drown you for 20 minutes, 40 minutes and then 60 minutes and see if you survive or not is a quite a poor ethics question to answer, really. I suspect they'll say no. So <laughs> when you then go to the literature, you have to then look at retrospective data sets, case studies and the like to try and bring together all these bits of information to, to create one uh, kind of set of guidance. So if you were to sort of start at the beginning and look at, so Linda Korn did a lovely paper from the Great Lakes and they looked at predictors for survival following submersion. So this is airway below the surface of the water such that they are underwater and drowning. And in their paper, again, they looked at it and they didn't see any particular markers and from the back of that, and again, there was a, another paper by Jo Spearens from the Netherlands looking at children, suggesting that 30 minutes was probably the maximum. And Linda and her team actually said that times even down to 18, 20 minutes, submersions beyond that, didn't result in any long-term recovery. But of course, that then goes against quite a lot of the case reports and literature that's out there. And so when you then look at the other key paper in this discussion is the paper by Frank Golden and Mike Tipton, where they did a, it was a very subtly different scientific design that they actually did a data trawl of all the cases and did a survival curve based on time of submersion that could be documented and the temperature of the water. And what they showed was there's essentially a cutoff around about six degrees where if you're above six degrees, nobody that they found in the literature survived longer than 30 minutes submerged under the water that then resulted in good neurological outcome. Once you go below six degrees, though, there were people surviving up to 90 minutes. And so within the UK, the Fire and Rescue Service took this on and they created the decision wheel, which has then been reproduced by the Resource Council and various other people which essentially has a, a point at the start of it that says dynamic risk assessment, is it safe to attempt a rescue in this body of water? And again, it comes back to that first principle we talked about. Self-team punter. If I'm safe, the team's safe, and if they're safe, we can affect a safe rescue or a safe body recovery. So dynamic risk assessment comes in first. You're then looking at your timings, and timings are crucial here because... We all know members of the public, as well-meaning as they are, they're not very good at telling you how long something's been going on. You, know, you turn up on the scene at the car crash, oh, how long have you been here? Two minutes! And you know that can't be right because they made the phone call 25 minutes ago, so they've been there at least 25. And so one of the things from the 
tips from Golden Paper was to say that your timing starts when you have your first reliable recorded time on scene. Now, for most of us, that's your first emergency service response, be that police, fire, coast guard, or the ambulance service. So from that point, you've then got 30 minutes to affect the rescue of that submerged casualty. And if you get to your 30 minutes, you then do another dynamic risk assessment to say, are there favourable conditions for survival? Now, the favourable conditions for survival, again, temperature, being very cold, is key because one of the things we know from neurosurgery, from cardiac surgery, and from the literature is that if you cool the brain down, your metabolic rate reduces, and the colder you get, the less and less activity is there, and so the less and less it requires oxygen. And so, again, from the literature, if you've cooled down first and then you have your hypoxic event or your respiratory cardiac arrest, if it's not a hypoxic one, there will be a certain amount of cerebral protection from the cold. But you have to have cooled first before you get that protection. Now, for some, that might be they've been immersed in that body of water for a period of time and then submerged. For others, particularly for younger, and funny enough, the, the literature suggests young female with low body mass index, that they've cooled rapidly. And again, as just going back to when we were saying about swallowing lots of water, if you swallow lots of cold water and then you vomit or spit that water back out, all that cold water is washing in and around your oropharynx, down in your esophagus, which, funny enough, is the main line next to the aorta and your carotid arteries feeding up into the brain. So again, you're starting to get some selective cooling. Added on top, of course, the brain has literally got dura, a little bit of fluid, skull, skin. It's quite close to all that cold water as well. The neck and the carotid arteries, again, quite exposed to all that cold water lapping around. You start to get into the realms of, do we have selective brain cooling? And there's some of this stuff from Japan and China has actually shown in dogs, you can actually selectively cool the brain. Appreciating that dog's anatomy is subtly different to the human being. But if you do get that selective brain cooling, you can get these survivals. But back to your flow diagram. So you've done a risk assessment, you've tried, you get to your 30 minutes, and if it's warmer than 6 degrees, or you know that there's other uh, companion factors, at that point it transitions to a body recovery rather than a rescue. And that's quite a fundamental thing if you're a responder because you're now actually saying it's okay for us to slow down, to not take as many risks because many of us will have a moral urge to act to rescue our fellow man or lady, as the case may be. And so if you actually say, okay, legitimately with science, I can say this person would not survive this event. And so we can take things slowly. We can wait for extra resource. We don't have to put ourselves at significant risk to recover what is now a body. Yes, it's a person, but it is a body that will not survive rather than making that that person's going to drown and I'm going to drown as the responder and I'm going to take all my team with me. Be I not taken into account, they will not survive. If, of course, you go, oh, actually, they're young, skinny, and it's middle of winter, the snow's melting on the hills, and so the water's actually now, it's an inlet, it's fresh water, and it's five and a half degrees, four and a half, five degrees. We're seen to be bobbing around with their buoyancy device, and then they were seen to submerge at this time on the CCTV. And you've now got somebody who's been submerged for 32 minutes with that story. You go, okay, 
is it safe for us to continue? Yes, it's safe to continue. You then go to your 60 minutes. And again, at 60 minutes, reevaluate and look then towards the 90. Now, the subtle difference here is I've told you my opinion, but the resource guidelines would actually say to you, if the water is cold and you suspect there is an option, you can go up to 60 minutes and then do that temperature-based dynamic risk assessment. I would go to 30, and again, that's just based on the literature that I've seen. But again, it all comes down to back to the RTC. How did they get there? What's the mechanism? Were they bobbing around for a period of time, or was it straight off the edge of the dock, into the water, and then they've been pinned there for 30 minutes? And they are morbidly obese, they're known heart conditions, and the water's 10 degrees because it's been quite a nice warm spell. Again, it's a very different picture. It becomes a very difficult decision to make, not least because transitioning from that rescue to recovery mindset is a huge psychological jump. Absolutely. But it is one of those things that when we initially looked at this as a problem, as a a community, and again, Professor Mike Tipton was very good in this, that he actually went to the people who were doing the job because they approached him in dribs and drabs and he said, right, let's all sit around the table because... When you're on scene, the urge to do something, and as you say, transitioning from I must save life, I must save life, that's what I'm paid to do, that's what I'm driven to do, that is my calling in life, is to be a responder. To then say, hang on guys, stop. It's a very difficult step. But if somebody doesn't make that step for you, if it doesn't provide the signs to allow you to do that, and thereby deconflict some of the psychological fallout that can come from this decision making, you push yourself too far and and i have various colleagues and friends who have they have gone that extra 10 minutes 20 minutes and the self-confession is myself i've attempted submersion rescues when the timings weren't necessarily clear and then you suddenly have that realization i've been trying to perform a submerged rescue when the water's 16 degrees in the middle of summer and i could have orphaned my children and widowed my wife all for that moral urge to act to get it right if I'd have known the signs and I'd had a strong leader at the time, I wouldn't have felt anything in that at all. You know, that it isn't your fault as a responder that that person's got themselves into trouble. But you've now got a good hard signs behind it that says it's okay to stop. And again, as you say, it, it stops that awkward transition period from rescue to body recovery because you can hang your hat and you can blame the literature and the scientists and everybody else who's put their name to it so that you can then go home to your family. And that's hugely reassuring, I think, uh, for a lot of folk, is knowing that this isn't sort of just expert opinion. This is a, a consensus that's been reached based on a reasonable Absolutely. degree of science. And with anything in science, it will change. As we gain more information, and if people are interested, there's a lovely resource that's the it's constantly debated, IDRA or IDRA, so it's I-D-R-A. If you look on their website, the International Drowning Research Alliance, there's lots of papers being published and they're working together globally to increase the research body around drowning. For exactly as you say, you know, things will change, but if you've got a good hard science that supports your actions, A, you're not going to have sleepless nights, you're going to get home, you're going to sleep well, and also if anything does go wrong and anybody criticises, when you are stood there holding the brassy rail, you can actually say, yep, yeah, I, I listened to this podcast, there was this doctor somebody down south said this is the research this is why i did it and the research is all there to support it and so again it's it's helping people make those critical decisions keeping things as 
simple as they can, as effective as they can, but also based on good science, as you say, well, as good as we can get without randomised control trials. I wanted to pick your brains on cold folk, but I'm aware that we're running out of time a little bit, so it might be something that we have to come back to. One thing I'd love to get your thoughts on is we ask all our presenters to give us three top tips for basics responders, in this case, dealing with a patient who's been in the water. What would your suggestions Um, be? If I was to take it down to three, the first would be oxygen, 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 oxygen. I know that's three, but if we call that one, the second would be float. And that's one of the things I'm very passionate about is if I can look after myself, I can keep my team safe. But the big plea, of course, is teach your children, teach your brothers, your sisters, your mums, your dads to float. Next time you're in a swimming pool, get them actually in the water and teach them to float. There's some fantastic resources on uh, the RNLI websites, on YouTube, if you just put float to live. So number one, oxygen. Number two, to float. And number three, think of it like that road traffic collision. Approach it in a simplistic what's happened and then an ABC approach. And did I say oxygen? Just going to say oxygen again. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Point well driven home. Paddy, that's absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for kind of walking us through that and for giving a really clear set of guidance that we can hopefully bury into a corner of the brain and and with any luck never have to use. My pleasure. Um, like many of these things, we you know we stand on the shoulders of giants, and there are many people have done lots of strong research on this. Um, the RNLI, the Coast Guard, Surf Life Saving GB, they've done some really good work on this, and they've all got some really good resources on their various websites. So that's kind of the homework big. And did I say oxygen? Oxygen. <laughs> What we'll do, we'll we'll put some links to the websites and to some of the papers that you've referenced up with this podcast so that folk have got a, a way to kind Dad. of to continue the learning. Paddy, thanks. Thank you, Dave, thanks for so much for coming on. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.